Good morning, everyone. You are bravely cold to come out here. At least it is sunny this morning, so it was a gorgeous drive. Uh, we are in week three of studying the table, the Lord's table, our table. And so my name is Brian, and last week Andrew taught us on the history of communion. We're going to review that in a second. But as we open, one of the things I was praying about as we doing this is just bringing us back to the center of communion and the meaning of that. So I want to read this benediction from Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, and then just pray it over us. So this is Ephesians 1, chapter 3. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his love, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I found this benediction really powerful just because as we come to the table, it's easy for us as we study to get wrapped up in all the elements of communion, and yet the table is meant to lead us into a deeper experience with Christ. It's meant to lead us towards a greater revelation of who he is and the gospel to him. And so this kind of just sets our hearts back on Christ as we dive into the ordinance that he left for us. So I'm going to open, I'm going to open with this prayer, and then we're going to do a quick review of what Andrew taught us last week. This is also from Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I've heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, we do not cease to give thanks for you. Remember you in our prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, and he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Fathers, we come before you today instead of your table. We study the thing that you left for us. I pray that you would give us a greater revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that he poured out for us. pray that your Holy Spirit would come and fill our hearts, and that you would lead us week in and week out with greater joy to your table, Jesus. So come and open our hearts, come with prayers, to still learn more about what you left us 2,000 years ago on that night before we died. We pray all of this for your glory and for your grace. Amen. So we started in week one with just an introduction, and then Andrew led us in a discussion of Jesus' last phrases, do this in remembrance of me, and this is my body. And he used that 
to kind of set up his week in which he took us through 2,000 years of history in one hour, uh, which he did a phenomenal job of, by the way. And so he began last week by issuing the question of unity, and is the church one? And I'm going to answer that later, but that was one of his big basis points as he led us into the four different views on communion. And so just a quick review, we have the symbolic view that when we come to the Lord's table, it is merely a memorial act, a remembrance act of what Christ did 2,000 years ago. This is, a, this is the view that Zwingli and the Anabaptists held. Going from there, we're kind of progressing to low church all the way to high church. So we have next is spiritual presence. Christ is not physically in the elements. He's not physically with us when we come to the Lord's table, but he is spiritually present. Going on from there, and hold on just a second. We have consubstantiation, which is a fancy word for Christ is with us in the elements. So if the elements do not literally transform, but they the Christ comes and meets us in that place. Technological difficulties. And then the, the highest view, which is the Catholic view, is transubstantiation. So when the elements are consecrated, they literally become, they go from bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. And that is the highest view of communion. So we're going from low church to high church, symbolic to transubstantiation. And there's a lot of room in the middle of those for us to for us to kind of to land on. And a lot of this comes from Augustine of Hippo's phrase, his best phrase on communion is, it's an outward sign of an inward grace. So theologians, especially in the 16th century, trying to figure out what is this thing, where is the presence of Christ when we come to the table and experience this inward grace. And they focused a lot on that. As we transition today, I'm going to capitalize on Andrew's phrase that he left us, a very brief phrase, that which is happening is happening. So regardless of whether you have the symbolic view or, or that the body and the blood are literally there as the elements, uh, what is happening when we come to the table? So Andrew also left us with faith seeking understanding. It's important to us for us to seek to understand. Uh, and I found this quote from Gerald Sitzer. He's a theologian out on the Northeast Coast, I think the Presbyterian tradition, he said, we might not be able to understand the elements' operations. We don't know whether they transform into the body and blood of Christ, or they remain just bread and wine and grape juice. But we can understand their effect. We know what happens. And the longer version of that quote is, theologians have tried to do what the Bible itself does not do, explain exactly how the sacraments work metaphysically. More often than not, they have missed the point, though. We might not be able to understand their operation, but we can understand their effect. The sacraments are a source of genuine spiritual life and an objective means of grace. The tangible, concrete, material nature of the sacraments reminds us of the reality of Christ's saving work. The sacraments join material and spiritual together into a seamless whole, just as the incarnation does. There are windows that allow us to gaze into another world and receive the grace that pours from that world into ours. So to begin, to kind of get your minds going, I you guys to huddle up in small groups so if you're sitting alone in the very back corner. <laughs> Dad. 
Uh, join up with a couple people around you and discuss when we come to the table, especially if you come to New Life downtown every week, you come to the table week in and week out. Why? What exactly happens when you come to that table? Why do you why do we make that the focal point of our service? So we need to be five five to ten minutes to discuss that question. <clears throat>
Uh, you talked about how it brings us together as a body. Uh, it unites us not only to ourselves, but across time and across traditions. And also it's a great time to focus on the Lord. What else? Nothing more. It's something we discussed a little bit last week. Um, different views, but I'll, I'll go dive back into it real quick. Different views of who can institute communion, essentially consecrate the elements. And there's a verse in First Peter that talks about the priesthood of all believers. And Luther really capitalized on this, but Andrew dove into what does that really mean? Does that mean that any one of us can consecrate the elements or not? And there's different views. Uh, all the way from only Christians to keep the elements. So you're having a great meal. But if you dive back to First Corinthians, when Paul is reprimanding the church in Corinth on communion, there's no, at that time, there's no hierarchical designations. Apostles are sent to establish these churches, but there's no bishops, there's no priests, there's no hierarchy, and there's no evidence that there's actually even a church leader in the church of Corinth at that time. Um, a dozen individuals. They're coming together as a meal, and he's seeing that as communion. And so anytime they're coming together, he's like, you guys are defining the Lord's table. And so from there, it seems like there's evidence that anyone can institute communion. There should be somewhat more of a communal practice. So it shouldn't be, communion shouldn't be specifically an individual thing that you do on your own. You can get these little communion to-go cups uh, they have <laughs> Uh, everyone for Christ and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it should be a bit more of a communal event. So I would say that if it's just a family and there's no priest, you can still consecrate those elements in your family. But that would be more of a person. I don't know if it's an Anglican position. It's probably closer to uh, the other Protestant streams positions, and that's where New Life kind of sits in that weird things. We come from a very evangelical, charismatic, non-denominational model, moving more into we have a pastor who is both an Anglican priest, but also living in that other stream in a Protestant, very non-denominational stream. So we probably sit right in the middle. Good question. What else? Alright, well, we're going to dive into all the different things that I've been studying communion, all the different things that God does, and as we kind of shift, I want to talk about our orientation. Uh, so last week as we talked about what's happening to the elements at the Lord's table in the 16th century, uh, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, all of these things, what happens is we shift that into what we experience and how we experience it. Does that affect it? And so Stanley Grins, who's a systematic theologian, had this great quote that transitions our orientation. He says, despite the differences, several possessions that form the focus of debate in the 16th century had one important feature in common. They all moved from the past to the present, seeking to explain how a past event, Christ's death, resurrection, and his institute, which was the Lord's Supper 2,000 years ago, can become a present reality. 
And so the first, it's divided into two dimensions that I want to talk about today. The first is a vertical. When we come to the Lord's table, what happens between us and God? And then the second one is more of a horizontal. What happens to us as a community, as a body of Christ? Last week, Andrew had this in his slides, but didn't have enough time. Uh, we had the phrase, a means of grace. And is communion an ordinance or a sacrament? So if you're moving from high church to low church, high church would call this a sacrament. It's a means of grace. We experience grace as we come to the Lord's table. Ordinance is more on the symbolic view of we do communion because God commanded us to. It's ordinance. He says, take communion because I told you to do that. Not that way. So we sit somewhere in the middle that it was both ordained. Christ called us to do this in remembrance of me every time you come and you proclaim my death until I return. Or, and we also experience grace. So it takes us into crisis to experience that grace. It's, Glenn talks about this in his book, Discover, Discover the Mystery of Faith. It's not a means of grace, it's not the cause of grace, but it's how we come to realizing that grace. And so the second thing that it does, coming to the Lord's table as a means of grace, is that it's spiritual nourishment. Adele Calhoun said, communion is to Communion means to be nourished by Christ, tasting the sweet depths of redemption. When we come to the table, we physically taste the bread, we physically drink of the cup. We are nourished by Christ. And it's a representation of our spiritual nourishment in Christ. He talk, Jesus talks about, I don't live on bread alone, but from everywhere in habitation. This is a physical representation that, that same way that Christ is nourished, by God's word, that we're nourished by that. And coming to the table is a representation of that. Wayne Grudem also talks about spiritual nourishment. He says, just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, so the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper give nourishment to us. But, they also picture the fact that there is spiritual nourishment and refreshment that Christ is giving to our souls. The spiritual nourishment, so necessary for our souls, is both symbolized and experienced and our participation in the Lord's Supper. Furthermore, communion is a formational practice. There's a guy, this, this book has been really influential in shaping some of New Life's downtown's liturgy. It's called Desiring the Kingdom. It's a philosophical book. He puts more big words in every sentence than anyone I've ever read. But he has some really good stuff to say, just questioning how are we formed? Um, we generally come to church and believe that it's an expression of our faith. Singing worship songs, listening to the preaching, coming to the Lord's table expresses what we believe. And Glenn, along with this guy, James K.A. Smith, believe that more than that, it forms who we are as Christians. It doesn't just express, it doesn't just reflect what we believe, but it shapes who we believe. And he contrasts this with what's called the liturgy of the mall. So he goes into this deep dialogue of when you go to the mall, it's speaking a lot of messages to you. And he actually takes away the word mall before you're using it. And he talks about this center of worship that you go to, and there's all these different chambers and rooms and relics and all these different things that become objects of worship that shape who we are. 
And it's what they are doing is they're shaping us into consumers. They're shaping us into the world around us and what culture is saying. Versus church, when we come to church, if we view it as merely reflection, then we are being shaped by the liturgy of the mall, the liturgy of our culture, versus the liturgy of the church. And this is something we've gotten away from as a body when we purely view church as reflection or expression. So he goes into, he spends his entire book on this, but he talks about coming to the Lord's table forms us. It puts an emphasis upon Christ and it puts an emphasis on a ritual that we do every week that shapes who we are. And all rituals can feel stale, and that's why the church has moved away from it. Whether it's the church ritual or the ritual of going shopping, that shapes who we are. So, uh, Desiring the Kingdom by James K. A. Smith. <clears throat> and the subtitle is Worship, Worldview, and Cultural Formation. The next piece is <clears throat> Communion as Consistent in Christ Sinning. <laughs> so, Glenn talks about this and he says, as far as consistent and unchanging, it's the one constant carrying piece of our service that is not reliant upon human effort. When we come to the, t- we come to the church service, our service, our quality, and our experience of Christ is based upon, oftentimes, the quality of the worship leader. If you guys have ever been in a service with just a worship leader that just didn't have it, whether it was not very musically gifted to the point of awkwardness, or very self-centered, where it feels much more like a rock concert, or, hey, look at me, very production-oriented. So it's very dependent upon him. And so Glenn says that worship and song requires a skilled band and a humble yet confident leader. And then the sermon hinges on the gifted teacher or preacher. We've been in, I'm sure we've all been in services with a very, very gifted preacher, and then in services where it's not so gifted of a preacher. Um, we have... At my work, we have a lot of pastors around, and some of the pastors that they talk about, the, they actually have really good points, but they never have anything to do with the text that he preaches on. These, these really good, quotable life statements, but not, they don't really revolve around the text he's preaching. And that was a really interesting revelation, because I've seen that in places. And so the teaching, the preaching, depends a lot on the quality of the teacher, preacher. But the bread and the cup will always be the body and the blood. There's a consistency there. No matter how good the preaching is, how poor the preaching is, how exciting the worship is, or how mundane the goal, or maybe you didn't like the song choice, maybe the worship leader is not very gifted. You come to the table and you experience Christ in his broken body, in his blood, and it's the same weekend and that, regardless of your feelings. And so there's a consistency there. And that, brings us to a remembrance that Christ is consistent. He's unchanging. He's faithful. From 2,000 years ago when he died and rose again, his faithfulness has been communicating and come to the table remembering that. We also come, and it's an anchoring point, because of his consistency, his past faithfulness translates into present faithfulness and future faithfulness, which gives us hope that we can place our trust and we place our hope in Christ. And then finally, it's Christ-centered. Whether the message is Christ-centered, whether the worship is Jesus is my boyfriend, or very Christ-centered worship, 
communion is always Christ-centered. It's really hard to make communion non-Christ-centered. A couple more things on it being consistent and Christ-centered is that it actually guards our doctrine. It's easy to get off and look into some of the different streams of the church. It's easy to get down into the minutia of the church and the different traditions and the different one of the 30,000 denominations that we have here in America alone. It, it's very easy to get into what God wants to bless me and lose our focus on Christ. And as a result, we can begin to go into doctrines that aren't exactly biblical. And so communion in its simplicity brings us back to a Christ-centered doctrine that is formed and shaped just around him and not all the peripheral, not all the minor things, but that helps us to focus in on the nature, which is Christ. The other thing that it does is positive accountability. When you grow up, who's been in accountability groups? Who likes accountability groups? <laughs> all right, we do have two of you. That is awesome. Um, oftentimes, accountability groups are these dreadful, dismal things that don't really even work that well. Some of you may have had better experiences, and I'm really glad you did. But communion provides a different kind of accountability. Rather than us coming and being accountable to the sins that we committed throughout the week and trying to be better for next week so we don't have as much to confess, communion keeps us accountable to the grace of Christ. Every week when that absolution is proclaimed over us and we have to turn to one another, we are saying in the midst of communion, in the midst of the body, that you are under the grace of Christ, that you are under the grace of Christ, that I am under the grace of Christ, regardless of what I did, regardless of how my week's been, regardless of how many first words I said, anything like that. I'm accountable to the fact that God died 2,000 years ago and rose again, and his grace was pulled out through that sacrifice. So it's a kind of positive accountability. And then finally, this is a really funny phrase that I took from this book, but I really loved the picture that I said. Communion is a sanctified letdown. And what I mean by that is every week that we celebrate the Eucharist is another week that the kingdom and its feasts have not yet both arrived. It doesn't take away from the joy of communion, but it's a remembrance not only that Christ died and poured out his grace upon us 2,000 years ago, but that as his kingdom is breaking into this world, it hasn't fully broken yet. It keeps us in this tension of the now and the not yet. It's a foretaste the coming kingdom. Wayne Gruden says this, yet even the Lord's Supper looks forward to a more wonderful fellowship meal in God's presence in the future. And the future of Eden will be restored and there will be even greater joy because those who eat in God's presence will be forgiven. Sinners now confirmed in righteousness, never able to sin again. So communion is also a sanctified by There's nothing in the Bible that laid out uh, how often you should take communion. One of the things that determines how often you take it is actually in 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about examining yourself, because if you come in unexamined, you drink judgment upon yourself. And so what they, what churches have done is they've used that of, if maybe if you do it every week, it becomes so traditional, so rote that you don't even think about it. Just like in our day and age, you can make times 
automatic giving from your credit card or your bank statement and all that stuff. And so you're tied in, you never think about it. There's no ritualistic giving. It's just, it just happens, you don't think about it. And so communion can become that and you celebrate it every week. So some are like, well, let's not celebrate this that much. Others have decided that because preaching or the worship service, the worship and song is central, let's put communion once every quarter, once every, just once a month. And so there's nothing biblical that states how often you should take it. There are illusions that at the beginning, every time they came together as a body, they came around the meal, and communion was tied up into that. But it was called the love feast, and the Roman government kind of thought they were cannibals who ate babies. So they, that's not a joke, but the early church was known as atheists because they only believed in one God, not the entire pantheon of Greek gods. And also they had these love feasts where they came together and talked about eating the flesh and blood of Christ. And so the Romans, without having been in one of these, said, these guys eat babies. So they were persecuted for that reason. But as a result, the actual communion and the love feast were separated out into two different things. And then the love feast went away, the entire meal became just a sacrificial, sacramental event. Did you have a hand? Yeah, yeah. portions of it being of our vertical experience is embodied and experiential. Um, it merges the physical with the spiritual. Our Christianity is not a dualistic thing where spirit is elevated and the body is bad. It's, we have a tendency to spiritualize things and the spiritual our spiritual experience of Christ is good, but we're just awaiting heaven. We just want to get off this God-forsaken planet and be with Christ in heaven for eternity. Whereas communion reminds us that, no, God put us here. And of all the plethora of ways that God could have devised to redeem mankind, he chose sending his son in the flesh. And so we have an embodied spirituality where our physical affects the spiritual and the spiritual affects the physical. And so they're not, <clears throat> they're not separated, they're together. So it reminds us that Christ was both God and man who came in the flesh. James Hayes has had this to say. It's as if the story we've been hearing and rehearsing, as we sing songs and worship, as we sit under the preaching, we hear the gospel. But now it comes to live illustrations. It's a tangible, tangible display of performance of the gospel. So we come and we enact the gospel. We enact the entire breadth of God's redeeming work in the simple act of partaking of the bread and the wine. Second part of embodying the experiential is that because it's not holistic, it sanctifies what we do. So it sanctifies our everyday stuff. It's just bread, it's just wine, it's just grape juice, and yet it becomes holy when we pray over it. So it takes the everyday things of our lives and it makes them holy. And it reminds us that there's a holiness, there's a sanctification, a set apartness in everything that we have and everything that we do. It also sanctifies our everyday activity. 
Who here doesn't eat on a regular basis? It turns out that you can't go super long without food, and even last time without drinking. Um, and so every day you have to eat, and there's a sanctification in everything that you do. There's a holiness in everything that you do, and communion brings us this thing that an act as simple as eating, but an act as simple as drinking, becomes sanctified through this consecration of your lives. And it reminds us that there is a sanctification in going to school. There's a sanctification in the holiness in going to work. There's a sanctification in sitting around on Sunday and watching football after church. These things can be made holy through the act of coming to the Lord's table and recognizing that God sanctifies everyday activities. It's also a sanctification of culture because bread does not naturally grow. It's not a fruit or a vegetable. It's not a towel. We have to make bread. We get raw materials, wheat and barley, and we combine them together with yeast and we have bread. Same with wine. Wine does not naturally occur. Grapes do. But you have to turn grapes into grape juice and ferment it into wine. And so the products of our hands, what God has blessed as he has given us and leaning over the earth, our creation as a result of being created in his image is sanctified because those things don't naturally occur. We have to make them. We bring those to the table. Coming to the table just reminds us that an everyday activity as simple as eating is made holy. And so there's a holiness in us living on this earth and doing simple activities such as eating. And it translates further into things like rest on Sundays. Right. So, so it's more so that it can be made holy. Yes. Like, it, it doesn't naturally make everything holy, but it's <laughs> that these things are good. They're not, you don't have to feel guilty for watching football on Sunday. You don't have to have this deep, profound spiritual experience. But I just really like the way this guy worships God as quarterback. It's like watching football on Sunday, resting and relaxing is good and enough of itself. It's... <laughs> yes. How does it become holy then? Because anybody who watches the game on Sunday afternoon obviously is not experiencing a holy event. But then how does it? Is there, is there an intentionality? Is there a prayer? Is there something that, because, because boy, here, in terms of the anointing of the elements, that's a big deal. Yes. But, uh, but there, it's, it seems very, you know, I say, positive. Oh, for sure. Um, it's that, it, it brings more of the intentionality, that as we pray and we come to the table and realize that God blesses everyday activities, that he's taking ritualistic activities and not separating them from things we have to do in our everyday lives, that we can go into a, watch a football game, we can go and enjoy friendship, we can go enjoy the, the activities of our everyday with the knowledge that God has created those things and declared them as good. So it would be like coming, we have to be intentionally mindful of that as we come to the communion table, and with that, it could translate to be intentionally mindful when we're resting and watching football, when we're about to be mindful. Yeah. It's just, it's learning that intentionality and that. Yes. So coming to the table, that active remembrance, that active focus upon Christ and his ordination of these things at the table can translate into that everyday lives. It's really kind of the overarching point of these three things. Because that tends, in my thinking, to go back to the fact that it was originally a meal. 
I actually don't like the, the yeast kind of bread that we do now because it does soak the, the wine, you know. But, yeah. but uh, that's, that's a beside the point. But I think there used to be a meal where they actually had a meal. And he's kind of great because there's something they're getting two folds and we're going hungry kind of thing. But but that's a different animal than this idea of a very sacramentalized a little iota of this, a little iota of that, and you, 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 it's not a meal at all. It's, it's, it's the activity of remembrance. So I just I, I kind of wish we could go back to the idea of a real meal. Oh, for sure. And uh, anyway. It's like we had meal groups. Right? <laughs> Good transition. <laughs> Chariots of fire, but the runner says, "God created me to run. When I run, I feel His pleasure." So that's what He created me for. And this is something that coming to the Lord's table at the age can be a reminder of that. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it has the potential to bring us to that place where we can feel His pleasure in things that He's created us to do. There's one more. that for all the things that we just went through, communion being a formational practice, communion being a sanctification of our everyday things and activities, communion being embodied, one of the most important things about communion is the simplicity. That there's a ton of theological things undergirding communion, and we have a faith that seeks understanding, and that's great. And yet there's a simplicity when we come to the table. When we read these two books, first one from Glenn, Says, for God has come to do for us what we cannot, to be for us what we cannot. We come with empty hands, he fills us with himself. His body becomes our bread, our portion. His blood becomes our drink, our sustenance. His grace becomes more than enough. And Gerald Sitzer, who had one of the great quotes that I write earlier, said, I meditate upon the blessing of God that rests on our family. A blessing that has nothing to do with us. The kind of father I am, the kind of children they are, the kind of Christians we are. I realize that God has given us grace in the past and he will continue to do so in the future. God is at work in that moment to cleanse me, to renew me, and to transform me, always in and through Jesus Christ, who suffered and died to unite me, to unite all of us to himself. And the only response I can give is thanks be to God. So there's a simplicity inside of communion. We come to the table for all the theological underpinnings that communion had, whether it's the presence of Christ and where he's at within the elements, all the other theological things, this is implicitly where we just come and when you can do it, say thanks to God.
There's a transitional point between the vertical and the horizontal, and it's at one with Christ, one with God, and oneness with others. So it's this unification. And Andrew posed this question at the beginning of his talk last week, but is the body one? And we have 30,000 denominations, and we have three different major traditions. We have the Protestant, we have the Catholic, and we have the Orthodox. Is there a unification? Because it doesn't always feel unified. And one of the things I'm discovering within community is that when we come to the body and the blood, all of a sudden it's not about us. All of a sudden we sit under Him, our identity is found in Him, and for one moment, for one glimpse, as we partake of the elements, we are united. Because all these other things, for, even if it's just for a small little bit, they are all away. We get a glimpse of eternity where we will be truly one. And it also translates into a oneness with one another. And so it unifies us together, not just here in this room, not here in this church, but with other churches, and even more importantly, with the saints across them. This is something that has been practiced for 2,000 years and will be practiced until Christ returns. And as we shift into the horizontal, I want to hit on just a couple of things. And there's some really interesting ones. One of these is the idea that communion creates a new economic reality. I touched on this the first week, but when we think of economic realities, we think of stock markets and banks and financial transactions and investments and 401 k and all these things. Yeah, communion for them, for the early church, created a new economic reality. This is a highly Anabaptist uh, theology, and I just found it fascinating when I was reading this. I was like, this has to make it in But Stanley Howard Hoff said, the Eucharist is the way Christians understand why generosity, rather than greed, can and must shape our economic relations. That as we come to the table, it sets us up to become the new creation that promotes generosity rather than greed. Daniel uh, John Howard Yoder, who is a really well-known Anabaptist theologian, he said this, only because that meal was at the center of their life together could it extend into the formation of a new economic community. Acts 4.32 says, no one claimed for his own use anything that he had. In the early church, in the New Jerusalem church, nobody considered anything to be their own. They had everything in common, they shared everything, but no one had anything to need. He said, John Margiotto says, that it was as a result of communion. The common purse of the Jerusalem church was not a purse. It was a common table. It arose not as a fruit of speculation or discussion about ideal economic relations. It was not something added to what was already going on. The sharing was rather the normal organic extension in table fellowship. So as they came together and had a common meal, it eventually translated into a common purse where they said, not just our meal, not just our eating is in common, everything we have is in common. And there's a hope and a vision that at least the Anabaptists and hopefully all of us have as a unification of God. That we begin to care for one another's needs and our sharing a table together, our coming to the Lord's table on Sunday, translates into us caring for those around us. The next piece is forgiveness and community. The forgiveness we receive, we must offer to one another. We can't come and we can't come to the table and receive forgiveness of God, we can reach out without eventually extending it to those around us, those who have hurt us in the past, 
that has to carry forward and create a new community where we're defined primarily by forgiveness, not by bitterness, not by anger, not by passions, hurts, not by popularity, complex feeling, any of these things, but we become defined by forgiveness. We are taken into our brokenness, and that brokenness is taken away by Christ's broken body and blood. But in turn, as our brokenness is taken away, we must offer that cleansing to others' brokenness. And then finally, it flows into our table, our common table, and preparing a table. And I'm not going to touch on that because Rachel's going to spend the entire week on that next week. So I'm going to transition it with this quote in just a couple minutes or quick. Questions. A kingdom shaped community cannot be satisfied with private, isolated individuals reconciled vertically to God. But the manifest witness of such reconciliation will be love of neighbor. And so we're just going to touch on that and how the Lord's say flows into our commentary next week. But we have just a couple minutes left for questions if you have any. Separate. And so, uh, 
as a guy named Brian Zahn, he is kind of in a similar tradition as New Life Downtown as far as following liturgy and coming out of a very evangelical background, Protestant background, and moving more towards a high church tradition. And he talks about things like, I visited, when they tweeted out one of the things, like, I visited a Catholic church today, and last night I had dinner with the priest. I went to dinner with the priest, and he invited me into his table fellowship. And then I came Sunday morning and was not allowed to take the Lord's table with him. And it's a heartbreaking reality. And so the unity isn't so much our unity, but it's the unity that we both come under the authority of Christ. So it's more of a spiritual unity than perhaps a present reality. That makes sense. So there's something cool about that, and then we end up in experiences like that. It's heartbreaking. So good question. Any other questions? Question in regards to that, the fundamental basis for the Catholic Church, for the Orthodox Church, for people that say, hey, if you're not a part of this denomination, please don't partake. Isn't it originally held that it can't be used if it didn't want people to partake in the world except for us that they would do? Because they knew the value of it. That is accurate. It comes. It goes back to the First uh, Corinthians eleven when it talks about taking communion in an unworthy manner. And so when you come and you take it in an unworthy manner, you unexamined, you don't have a reconciled relationship with Christ. You're drinking judgment upon yourself. That's why even in a lower church tradition, they say those who believe that Christ is Lord and Savior can partake regardless of tradition. So they leave it up to our hearts to decide whether or not we believe in the saving grace of Christ. It's a very individualistic, enlightened way of thinking, uh, which isn't bad, actually, in this instance. I think it's really healthy. Versus the Catholic Church or some of the older traditions say, we can't know what's in your heart, so we can only, we have to protect the sanctity of communion by allowing you to only come if we know that you've been reconciled with Christ, which happens through baptism, confirmation, or a newer membership. And so there, there's a protection, it's, a, it's holding the sacrament in a high view, but it also becomes an exclusive event. And so it's, it's got some advantages of protecting the sanctity of communion, but it also has the disadvantage of excluding a lot of members of the body of Christ. Does that answer your questions? Any final remarks? Questions? Just a note here. I, I think the age in which we're now living is a very unique age, given our connectivity, our communication, the fact that we visit other churches. That's really almost unheard of in the long run in terms of history. And I feel like we could find, even in our own generation, uh, a point where the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the radical before of Protestant groups may actually kind of drop their guard and say, hey, For sure. uh, we may need to re-establish our, our before what we do around the Lord's table to say, hey, we're going to drop our guard in terms of saying, hey, everyone's welcome here. We are one body. Given uh, the, the latest Pope and stuff, I, I just think there's huge uh, winds of change. Definitely. It's very exciting to be a part of it. There's huge opportunity for it, and there's also a huge hope for it, because every single tradition 
across the centuries has brought something really powerful and unique to Christianity. And so the Catholics, we, we were at a talk a couple weeks ago about C.S. Lewis and imagination. And it was a really, really great talk. One of the things that really shaped me was talking about uh, how we describe things. And that he talked about using a perfect example if it's cold outside. And so when you woke up this morning, or any morning this week, it's cold. And saying it's cold outside is a fact. It's a verifiable fact. You can translate that exact same fact into a scientific language. So it was seven degrees when I left the house. That's the exact same fact communicated in scientific language. Then you can have a poet write a nice sonnet about it being cold outside. And it's also communicating the same truth, but in poetic language. And there's something beautiful about that. And what what we had ended on in the discussion point at that point at that time was the Catholics have this great beauty of the sacraments and the Eucharist, and there's this great poetry communicating the truth of Christ through that. And Protestants brought great poetry into preaching, something that wasn't emphasized in the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox tradition. And there's poetry in that, and we tend to reduce communion to more of a scientific fact. And uh, they do the reverse. And so combining them back together, and that hope is that we regain the beauty of Christ, whether it's through preaching, through communion, through any of these different spectrums and traditions, we come together under Christ. And so I hope, in the same way, hopefully with this new Pope, there's more opportunity. He actually does with a lot of physical, tangible action in reconciling the church because we, there's a great opportunity to unite under what we have in common with the small differences that we have. I want to close with this. This is called the Epiclesis, and I thought this would be a phenomenal way to end. And I'm just going to read it over you, and then you will be dismissed. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here, and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them to be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. I'll go and enjoy the Lord's table for second service.